Good morning. It's so great to see each of you. And if we haven't seen each other before, I'm Rob, and I'm glad that you're at Restoration today. We're opening with Mark chapter 12. So I invite you to turn or click however you want to get there. I believe it'll be on the screen if you want to read it there. But we are going to hear one of actually my favorite parts of the Bible right now. Mark 12, starting in verse 28. It says that one of the teachers of the law came and heard them debating. Noticing that Jesus had given them a good answer, he asked him, of all the commandments, which is the most important? The most important one, answered Jesus, is this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. And the second is this, love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. Well said, teacher, the man replied. You are right in saying that God is one and that there is no other but him. To love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your understanding, and with all your strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself is more important than all burnt offerings or sacrifices. When Jesus saw that he had answered wisely, he said to him, you are not far from the kingdom of God. Would you pray with me? God, this is your word and it's good, and I pray that we would hear it today, that your spirit would speak to us, that we would have eyes to see what we need to see and ears to hear what we need to hear, and a heart to respond to what you're doing in us, around us, and in the world. Amen. Well, sometimes I wish it was that clear, like there were signs that actually said things like this in the world. Like, sometimes though signs don't even help. I remember being a freshman in high school quite a while ago, and our swimming pool was one block from our high school, and so when I joined the swim team, all the students just walked across the street. We went over to the locker room, we got changed, and then we had to go out onto the pool tech to do our dry land while the coach got ready, while the middle schoolers came, and so we'd do our push-ups, our sit-ups, our stretching, and... I think it was our leg lifts. And after we were done, we were kind of waiting for him to say go. And of course, like everything in high school, it's ranked. So the pool lanes are ranked, and you wanted to get in one of the good lanes. You didn't want to get in one of the bad lanes, because then other people might think you're bad or good. I'm not sure what it was. I just remember when he said go, then I started running. Even though there was a sign that clearly said no running, and I was a lifeguard, by the way, too, so I enforced this rule all the other times, but you know, in this particular case, we all ran, or at least I ran, until this slippery spot on the pool deck that was camouflaged unbelievably well. So you have to picture, first of all, that I'm wearing the 1989 or 90 version of the uh, Speedo, you know, male swimsuit, as I'm running in my hundred and not very big pounds uh, body, and I slip, and my leg goes backwards, so my top goes forward, and then to compensate, I arch my back to keep myself from doing that, which causes my legs to rocket forward, and then above my head, and then, boom, I hear my butt, my back, and my head all hit the ground at the same time, and it was cold and hard, 
and wet because it was slippery, <laughs> right? I'm not actually sure how long I was on the ground or uh, when the little fuzz in my eyesight started or stopped happening. I just remember that there wasn't uh, concussion protocol back in 1990. So uh, I got in the pool and swam and had a pounding headache, and I'm not sure that was the best thing to do. But I'm here today, and it might explain some things for you. (laughs) But I did decide that day that no running was actually something that was good at the pool, and I started to obey that. And sometimes when I think about relationships, I think, man, if only they were as easy to navigate as a slippery pool deck. And we had signs that said, no running, or caution, slippery area, or don't say that. You wreck your relationships. Because when I think about, especially back to the best and worst parts of school, and I mean any school, elementary, middle school, high school, college, when I think about the most stressful things, the most anxious things, the things that could have been my greatest joys or my most embarrassing moments and biggest regrets, it wasn't grades, it wasn't deadlines, it wasn't classes, it wasn't even sports, it was relationships. And my relation slips. And a relation slip is when you say something that you shouldn't say or you do something that you shouldn't do, and it damages the relationship. It might be for you when you need to say something and you don't say it, or you need to do something and you don't do it. Those are the things that I would call relation slips. But regardless of it, when you're in a situation like that, when the relationship is cracked, it consumes your mind. It's like this weight of a backpack filled with a bunch of bricks, and you are carrying it around. You are distracted. You're emotionally consumed by it. You are obsessing about it, and you can't fix it right away. And it can cause more than a pounding headache. It can even cause heartache. It can happen with a best friend. It can happen with an enemy. It can happen at work. It can happen at your house. It can happen in church. Uh, I think some people have lost uh, jobs over relation slips. Some people have lost friends over relation slips, and some people have even lost marriages over relation slips. So it's something that I think we need to talk about. A friend of mine, when I was talking to him about this, he said, you know, I've just slipped my way through life. I'm not even sure how I have any friends. I'm like, yeah, you're kind of... A hard-to-get-along-with person, but I still like you. But Proverbs 13.20 is something that I think shares wisdom. It says, The one who walks with the wise will become wise, but a friend of fools will suffer harm. So where, where do you place the relationships you have and wisdom? Do you find wisdom from the people that you're with, or do you often not always get something that is wise? Because when I think about this, I think, I have some friends who can, who can help me with this, for sure. But I am always looking for ways to improve this because it somehow seems to enter all the time. 
Jesus is actually the master of relationships. He dealt with difficult people. He said what he needed to say when he needed to say it, and he didn't say something when he didn't need to say it, and we can learn from how he did this. But I just want to give you this warning. As I thought about and studied and asked some questions and talked to some of my pastor friends, this is not going to be easy or light. If you've been to churches where they've talked about relationships, maybe you're like, oh, great, we'll get a Bible verse or two and then like Oprah Winfrey help. No, I mean, no offense to Oprah Winfrey, but we're just going to look at what Jesus said and what we need to do with it. So I just want to start by asking the question, uh, what percent or what percentage of what Jesus talked about in loving God and following him had to deal with how we treat other people? Was it like 10%? It was very little of what he talked about? Or maybe you, you would even say it's, it's 50%. It's half of what Jesus talked about, about what it meant to follow him, had to deal with loving others. Anybody want to throw out a guess? 100%. We're just going <clears throat> right for it. Anyone want to challenge that? 90%? I might have bred my notes. I'm not sure if it was 90 or 100. I just know it was really high. I'm assuming it was really high. Uh, that's because God cares about how we treat other people. And how we treat other people actually shows how much we care about God. So it is high. And I think when most of us think about loving God, we think about doing something spiritual. And we equate that with religion. So when I talk to people about God or loving God or their faith, they tell me about church or how much they go to church or how they wish they would go to church more. I don't know if I just wear this thing that says, I'm a pastor, you should feel guilty. <laughs> I try not to do that, but, oh, yeah, I go to church uh, sometimes. Or, or they talk about reading their Bible or praying. And those are all good things. But Jesus actually never said, you know, you should go to church. And maybe because they had synagogues and temple, but, and it was part of their culture. But he didn't say, you should really read your Bible. Now, maybe it was because they had scrolls and only the very rich had Bibles, so they didn't have that opportunity. But he didn't default towards doing something spiritual, doing something religious. And I think part of our nature is to do something religious. If we, religion is doing something to help us feel closer to God. That's religion. I do this thing and then I feel closer to God. It's, it's a part of our journey with God, but it's not the journey with God, and it's not the greatest story in the Christian faith, which is that God comes to us regardless of what we do and meets with us and makes a way for us. Jesus said in John 15, 17, this is my command, love each other. There's not a lot that we need to dissect with that. In the Greek, it means the same thing. Um, he also said in John 15, this is my command, or my command is this, love each other as I have loved you. So that's a little bit more daunting. I think some of us wish that Jesus would have said, here's how you love God. 
if you read your Bible seven days a week and you pray in the morning and the evening and you give some of your money and you go to church, then, then you will love God because we can check those things off. But Jesus actually says that our ability to love our enemies tells us that we're God's children. Not just people we like, but people that we would say are our adversaries or people that we might think hate us actually reveals if we're God's children. And that's not something that I like to hear. I'm like, really, God, do I have to talk about how we love others? Because I don't really, especially for seven weeks, that's going to be hard because you're going to reveal all these ways that I don't love you well by loving others. Because when we're presented with two spiritual options, go to church or love others, I think we take the easier one. Like, hypothetically speaking, let's just say on a Sunday morning, I snub my wife or yell at my kids. I mean, I know that's hard for you to think about, but just imagine, if you know me, it's a lot easier for me to say, oh, it's time to go to church, let's go. I mean, that sounds spiritual, uh, we're going to worship God, and no one should fault me for that. I'm being, a, I'm being a leader in my home by inviting all my family to church, and three-fifths of us made it today, so clearly that shows that we're loving God. But Jesus actually could fault me, because he says in Matthew 5, you've heard it said by people long ago, do not murder. That's in the Ten Commandments. And when God pulled his people out of Egypt, he brought them to a desert, brought them to a mountain, and gave him his word, his living word. And part of that was these Ten Commandments. Four of them were about loving God. Six of them were about loving others. And one of them said, do not commit murder. And then through the ages, as this nation grew into a people, what they did is they made commentary on what it meant to not murder. Well, does that mean do not kill? Or does that mean if someone comes in your home? And they had centuries and centuries of commentary on what this meant. So Jesus is responding to that. You've heard it said by people long ago, do not murder. And anyone who commits murder will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with a brother or sister, someone that you would call family, and to the people that were known as Israel, anyone who is an Israelite would be family. If you're angry with a brother or sister, you will be subject to judgment. And anyone who says raka or idiot to someone will be in danger of the fires of hell and answerable to the court. Therefore, if you are offering your gift at the altar and then you remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift in front of the altar. Go and be reconciled. And then come and offer your gift. See, Jesus is saying that restoring a broken relationship is actually more important than worshiping God at that moment. Have you ever thought about that? He's saying this is a spiritual matter that shows our relationship. And then he goes on to say, if you don't settle matters quickly with an adversary who's taking you to court... Settle matters quickly with your adversary who wants to take you to court, who wants to go about the ways in which the world would try and reconcile things. Reconcile things in the spiritual realm together so that you can really worship me. Because if you don't do this while you're on the way, 
your adversary will hand you over to the judge, and the judge will hand you over to the officer, and the officer will throw you in prison, and I tell you, you will not get out until you've paid every last penny. And some of us are sitting in a type of prison in our relationships. And sometimes it's because we think that we just should keep coming to the altar, and if we just keep worshiping God, and we keep asking him for forgiveness, that somehow those things will be fixed. And I think Jesus is saying here, no, they won't. This is a spiritual matter. So if you're keeping notes, the first thing about preventing and overcoming relation slips that we need to understand is that relationships are the most important part of our lives. That nearly everything Jesus talks about, about loving God, is connected to loving others. So if we want to prevent and overcome relation slips, then we need to make relationships a higher priority. We need to elevate that priority in our lives. And I don't know how you think about your priorities, but I often say um, God, wife, family, work, friends, other people. That's how I do it. And so then when other people come to me, then I filter them through that grid. And when I filter them through the grid, I let everything in my schedule, everything in my mental state at that moment actually have an opinion of that, which usually means that my response to other people is, have you prayed about that? Or, wow, I'm sorry to hear that. But my first facial expression does not convey that they are a priority in my life or that they would be a priority in God's mind. So I'm inviting you to look at how you prioritize relationships, which means loving others, and where it falls. And that maybe it's, like me, a little too low on the list. And if you're like, ah, I don't know, I don't think that's the highest priority, we can just go back to the first verses we read. Mark 12, which when asked what's the most important commandment, Jesus links loving God with all our heart and all our soul and all our mind and all our strength with loving others, loving our neighbor as ourself. And so if you think about it, you might be like, okay, I can, I can tolerate and maybe even enjoy a discussion on relationships as long as I get to define who other people are. As long as I get to choose who I have a relationship with. Because here's the deal. If you want to feel successful at relationships, like if I want to be successful at it, the key is I make the circle of other people really small and I make sure that they look, think, and act a whole lot like me then I will be great at relationships. But that's not what Jesus says to do. In fact, that's not even how God created the people of Israel. In Leviticus 19, I know maybe you don't spend a lot of time in Leviticus, but in Leviticus, God is forming the nation of Israel as a people. He brought them to this mountain. He gives them the Ten Commandments, which are the Ten, but then he gives a whole lot of other things. And so you have to picture he has encamped them 
out in the desert. So no one's really attacking them, which is good because they don't really know. They've been slaves in Egypt for 400 years. They don't really know how to operate as a people. And so there's this tabernacle that's in their midst that they've constructed. This is where God will dwell with them. There's a pillar of fire by day, or a cloud of protection by day, and a pillar of fire by night that is, that is above this tabernacle. And Moses, their leader, goes to meet with God at the tabernacle. So you need to picture this in the middle, and then picture there are 12 tribes of Israel. So all of the nation of Israel, which is probably around 2 million people, um, they're all camped in a circle around the tabernacle, but they all face the center. So when Moses would go to the tabernacle, they would all stand outside their tent, and they would look at Moses going to the tabernacle. So if you picture this long tent that is a little smaller than a football field, I believe, actually a lot smaller than a football field, they could see past that, and then who would they see? Say it louder. Their neighbor. They would see the other tribes of people. So as they are learning what it means to follow God, as they are learning what it means to love God with all their heart, with all their soul, with all their mind, with all their strength, they are also learning what it means to see and love their neighbor. So they got this, sort of. Leviticus 19 says, uh, do not defraud or rob your neighbor. Do not go around spreading slander among your people. Do not do anything that endangers your neighbor's life, for I am the Lord. Do not hate a fellow Israelite in your heart. Rebuke your neighbor frankly so that you will not share in their guilt. Loving people doesn't mean not telling them the truth. But do not seek revenge or bear a grudge against anyone among your people, but love your neighbor as yourself. I'm the Lord. So this is written all throughout the scriptures. And that's good because in Minnesota we like to settle for nice. People were here, I guess there was this football game like last weekend, the Super Bowl, and so people from all over the country came in and they're like, oh, yeah, Minnesotans, they're just so nice. Sometimes we miss that nice and loving others are two completely different things. If you ever want to know, just ask someone something that they find uncomfortable because a Minnesotan will say, oh, that's interesting. And what they mean is, that is the stupidest idea I ever heard, and you're an imbecile. But they say, interesting. You should try it. Um, that was from me, not from God's word. Uh, so Israel knew how to define neighbor. It was those people around the circle. It was their fellow Israelites. So when someone was outside of that, they were not a neighbor. In fact, uh, some of you, if you grew up in a Catholic church, you have some extra books in your Bible. Or if you have one that I think is the NRSV, the New Revised Standard Version, sometimes those are included. There's... Uh, one of those books is called Sirach, and in that it says that two nations my soul detests, and a third is not even a people. Those living in Seir and the Philistines. The Seir, 
The, the region of Seir was where the Edomites lived. The Edomites were descendants of Esau, and Esau was the brother of Jacob, and Jacob became Israel. So this people is the people of God. This one decided that a bowl of stew was more important than God's blessing. So they're saying, yeah, we don't really get along. Okay, I can get that, sibling rivalry or whatever. So then the Philistines are a coastal people that lived in the land of Canaan. They're descendants of Canaan. They're ultimately descendants of Canaan. They're always fighting the people of Israel. And the third are not even a people, the foolish people that live in Shechem. Shechem is a place in the northern kingdom of Israel. It's where the Samaritans live. The Samaritans were the Jewish people that were well, the Israelites that were brought into Assyria after they were taken into captivity and exiled, they became um, breeded with the Assyrians, and so they called them half-breeds, and the Jews hated them. Part of the problem was that the Samaritans didn't accept all of the books of the Bible that the Jewish people did. Part of it was that they worshipped God in a different place and in a different way, and they hated him for it. And even... Even in this book, they say they're not even a people. And it might sound harsh, but my point is, we all do this. We all decide who's in the circle of friends, of neighbors, and who's in the other people category. And who's in the not even a people category. And Jesus challenged this. When Jesus says, love your neighbor as yourself, and you've heard it said that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Sirach, Jewish commentary, all over the place. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your Father in heaven. He's the one who causes the sun to rise on the evil and the good, to send rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. And if you love only those who love you, what reward will you get? Do not even tax collectors do that? I thought about what the modern-day equivalent of a tax collector would be in the Jewish people's minds, and the closest thing I could come up with is someone who um, is pimps out people, human traffickers. We would say they have sold their soul to buy and sell people. And if that creates a visceral response in you, then you are starting to understand what a Jewish person would say about a tax collector who'd sold their soul to the nation of Rome to make money. And Jesus is saying, if you only love those who love you, you're just as good as the tax collectors. And if you greet only your own people, what good, what are you doing more than others? Do not even pagans do that? People who don't even believe in God? So be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. So I think if we're going to really, really dive into what it means to do well at relationships, to prevent and overcome the relation slips, we don't just need to elevate the priority of our relationships. I think we need to expand the boundaries of our relationships. Who gets to count as a neighbor? There's another time where Jesus is questioned about the most important commandment. And a religious person answers the way Jesus did, and Jesus affirms the answer. And so he says, you've answered correctly. Just do this, meaning 
Love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and mind and strength and love your neighbor as yourself and you will live. You will have eternal life. You have found what it means to be in the kingdom of God. You're not far from the kingdom of God. And the person says, wanting to justify themselves, and who is my neighbor? It's in Luke 10. I love how the message translation phrased this. He says, looking for a loophole, he asked, how would you define neighbor? Isn't that the question? If we really want to love God and love others, we have to decide who we're willing to see as others. And Jesus tells a famous story that, quite honestly, I'm a little afraid to share because so many of you probably heard it. I mean, there are organizations that are named after it, and I fear it would lose its power that it had in Jesus' day. So I heard on the news this week that there was a man in St. Paul who's well-known. I think he's in his mid-50s, and he's, they listed out all the charitable things he, he's done, and he was hit by a car last week, and the person just drove off. So the news was saying, if you saw anything, would you please say something? The security camera we have, the footage we have, it's too grainy, but we want to know what happened. And Jesus tells a story a little bit like that. Someone that you think of as someone that you know and like, or even if you don't know, you know you would like. That picture for you, have that person in your mind. That person is hit by someone on the road and left for dead on the side of the road in Minnesota winter. And a religious person goes by and sees the person but walks by and doesn't do anything. Or someone who is active in nonprofits and serving and known by government and civic organizations, they see the person and they walk by too. And then someone you hate Someone that gives you a visceral response. Someone like a human trafficker. They pull up in their black Escalade. Yes, I'm stereotyping. And they see the person. And they get out of the car. And their driver waits for them. And they assess the situation. And they pull out their first aid kit and they wrap what they can wrap, and they open the back of the Escalade, and they put this person in the back of the car, and they drive to HCMC. And they bring them into the emergency room, and they start, you know, they get handed a bunch of paperwork, and he just hands over cash, and then a credit card. Doesn't really care if he's traced. Says, pay for the weekend, do whatever you need to do. I don't care if he has insurance. I just want to make sure he's well. And I'll come back. Actually, just keep my credit card. It's still good. I won't cancel it. Jesus, at the end of his story, it's in Luke 10, if you want to read the story called The Good Samaritan, he says, and which of these three was a neighbor to that person? And the religious leader says, the one who showed him mercy. Or maybe your translation says, the one who acted kindly to the person. Partially because that religious person couldn't even say the type of person that Jesus refers to in the story. Because 
he thinks of Samaritans as not a people. See, I think God is inviting us, in, not just in the series, but in life, not just to notice people, but to actually see them. To see all of them that God brings in your path, whose need you can meet. And that's what it means to expand our boundaries of relationships. That means the creepy relative that sort of repulses you, or the politician that you love to hate, I'm sure there's one or two, or the neighbor that irritates you, or the person in your work or in your home that has let you down time after time after time after time. They're all your neighbors. And what proves that we're God's children is that we love those people. That no one's off limits. The people that we would choose to not see. One person put it like this. Ted Engstrom in his book, The Making of a Christian Leader. God does not demand of me that I accomplish great things. He does demand of me that I strive for excellence in my relationships. 1 John 3 says it more succinctly. We know that those who have died to our old life and received God's new life because we love one another. Those who do not love are still living in their old life. We can't love the way Jesus wants us to love unless we receive his spirit. But if we receive his spirit, if we actually live in this place where we hear God's voice, that's what Jesus said. The most important commandment is this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is one. Starts by hearing God and then by loving him, by letting his spirit flow through our lives. If we start with that, we actually can love the people that we don't want to love, that we're afraid to love, that we can step into this place where we know and feel like we are children of God. That is a secure place. It's a beautiful place. It's a place where you don't have to stop and think about how you come across to others, where you can just come across. It's freeing and joyful and necessary in the world. And it starts by evaluating where we're at in our relationships, how high that priority level is, and by where those boundaries are but it can't end there because if it does, you'll just either be depressed or act religious. But it can lead you to a place where you accept the lordship of Jesus in a deeper way. So I invite you to pray with me as we respond in song. Jesus, you, you say that you understand everything we've experienced. So you must know what it's like to not want to love someone. And yet you continue to choose to love people. You were able to hate evil and yet never hate people. That's the kind of love that I want. 
Jesus, when you were beaten and mocked and crucified, you could have called down wrath from heaven and been completely justified. And yet, you said, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. You loved your enemies. You loved in a way that that we can't love on our own, but with your spirit, we can. We don't want to be just nice, God. We want to actually be loving and be holy. You call us to that spirit-filled, fully alive completeness. Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. We cannot do it in our own actions, God, but we can do it with you flowing through our lives. So, God, I ask that you restore my heart, that you restore any willing heart here, that you make it one with you, God, that you bring this peace and joy to our, sel- to our soul because of your salvation, God, that you would remake and restore our hearts with you. God, that we could love people because we see people, because you give us the strength to do it. And because it's what and who you are.